Welcome to the sermon podcast for Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Central South Carolina. We thank you for taking the time to listen to this message from the Word of God, and we pray that God will both bless you and speak to you as you listen and apply His Word to your life. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to preach from Genesis all the way through Revelation. I'm going to preach the whole Bible right here this morning. Uh, So don't freak out. However, I will get you to lunch on time, Lord willing. Um, I am doing this because, again, we are going through as Jesus describes the signs of the end times and really began with the temple destruction in Jerusalem prophesying that, which took place in A.D. 70 after Jesus had already ascended and gone to heaven. And then he talks about other signs that we've talked about in recent weeks of wars and rumors and wars and talks about uh, earthquakes in diverse places. And that was the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of labor pains and how certainly we have seen those things taking place and more and more uh, as we draw closer to the return of Christ or the rapture of the church, we'll see those more and more. And I've often described it as as you're driving to Disney or Myrtle Beach. In fact, we most recently went to Myrtle Beach uh, this past spring. And as we drove down, you know, you don't see many signs from Myrtle Beach until all of a sudden you get closer and that certain road there within certain miles all of a sudden, all the billboards, all the signs are for aquariums or different tourist trap things there in Myrtle Beach. And the closer you get to Disney or the closer you get to Myrtle Beach or wherever it is that destination is you're going, the more the signs appear and the bigger the signs get until you reach that pinnacle moment, that, that moment where you see... Uh, the magic kingdom, or you see the ocean, or you see, and then you are there. And so we're not there yet. We're getting closer. We're seeing the signs of the times. And again, we're going through these signs in the book of Mark as we've been going through verse by verse through the book of of Mark, or chapter 13. And at chapter 13, I've kind of gave you an overall picture of the chapter for homecoming, and then we've been kind of going down through these sections But in the verses, there was a phrase that stuck out to me. And we'll see if it sticks out to you, and I'll come to it in a moment, and I'll point it out to you, that gave me the idea, let's go back. And so for the next two days, or next two weeks, uh, we're going to be preaching through the Bible, and then next week we're going to talk specifically about the events of the tribulation and the, the... End times, meaning not just the end of the age, which is the church age, but future things of prophecy of the tribulation and the new Jerusalem, the new earth, those things that are described there in Revelation. So let's grab our Bibles and let's hold them up, if you would, and say along with me that this is the word of God. I will read it. I will believe it. And I will obey it by the grace of God. 
We're going to read again verse 14. Now again, this is Jesus giving signs. He talked in days or in last week in the verses before, we talked about the fact of signs of where they would be persecution would come and father would turn against son and children against their parents and brother against brother uh, in persecution that would come both from government and personally like families. And we talked about that last week and those things were taking place some now even but also specifically as we get into the first part of the tribulation period that will increase all the more. But now in verse 14, it talks about the abomination of the desolation. This was prophesied by Daniel uh, back in Daniel chapter 9. And it was a multi-tiered prophecy, meaning, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, there was an abomination of desolation that took place with Antiochus Epiphanes before Christ. And then there are some that say, well, it takes place again in A.D. 70 when the, when the temple was destroyed as Jesus prophesied in the beginning of chapter 13 and the Romans put their feet or walked through the court of the temple that was not for them. That would have also been an abomination. So some say that was it. But also we do know when we read Revelation and also the prophecies, that the Antichrist will desecrate the temple at the three-and-a-half-year mark, which is what this is talking about, uh, I believe, the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. Now, it can't be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes that took place before Christ because that's already happened. So it's got to be talking about a future yet event. And it's when, in the, in the tribulation, Antichrist who will, be, will, will rise to the surface and he will be thrust into leadership and then there will be a peace treaty with Israel that will last three and a half years but then he will go into the temple and proclaim himself to be the Messiah and he will sacrifice, make a sacrifice that will just shatter any peace treaty, any relationship with the Jews whatsoever and that is when that happens, he's saying to the Jews, flee to the mountains. And that's what's taking place here. So let's read in verse 14. When ye shall see the abomination, desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understandeth, and let them that be in the Judea flee to the mountains. So that's those that are there in Israel. The Jews, it's specifically for the Jews. They will flee, or they are, should flee, because now it's going to be all-out war on the Jews. And we're seeing some of this taking place, but we're not there yet. And let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither there enter therein, or take anything out of his house. Let him that is in the field not turn back again, for to take up his garment. In other words, don't waste any time. Get out. But woe to him that are with child, or, or, or have babies, or are pregnant, or to them that are nursing babies. And pray that your flight not be in winter, because that's when the river plains will be flooded and the travel will be more difficult then. For in those days shall be affliction. Now here's the phrase that stuck out to me and gives me my title for today. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created, unto this time, that's where Jesus is talking at that moment, around, eight, around B.C., 
30, I'm sorry, AD 30 rather, neither shall be. So from the time of Christ, that moment there, for the rest of the world, nothing will be like those days that he's describing. A time like no other, if you will. That's where I get my title from. And except the Lord had shortened those days. In other words, he will shorten them. Keep that will be limited in time. In fact, seven years, or in fact, three and a half years from the abomination of desolation. If, if the Lord had not shortened those, if he does not shorten those days, no flesh should be saved. In other words, be saved alive. Not talking about their soul saved, talking about will be living. But for the elect's sake, that's the, who those who are saved, will be saved, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened those days. For then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not, for false Christs and false prophets shall arise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect or even the church. Not, well, the church or those who would believe. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all these things. Again, here's Jesus now talking about the latter half of the, th of, the th of the tribulation. Seven years, but three and a half years. The last half in particular is what he's focusing on here. But I want to focus particularly on the phrase, because I want you to understand a flavor, a taste, a, a, just a glimpse in the next two weeks of what it's going to be like. And in order to do that, we must see what's already taken place and then see there's going to be nothing that compares to the wrath that God pours out the last half of the tribulation and during the tribulation period. And so therefore I bring this message again, a time like no other. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see in your word the desperation of our moment the urgency of the moment of making sure, God, there is nothing that is preventing you from sending your son at this moment, this very moment, to call all believers to heaven. There's nothing right now preventing the Antichrist from rising and from these tribulation events taking place. There already is persecution in the world. There already is the world in turmoil with earthquakes and with famines and pestilence and all kinds of things. But God, it's going to get so much worse. And Father, for any that is listening to the sound of my voice, that they would know for sure that they are saved. And that also we would with great urgency go and tell those around us how they can be saved. God, help us to see and to know these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see that this is a time that we're talking about now like no other. And in order to help you to see it and to give you comparison, we're going to go back to the beginning. And that's why your outline is going to break down the various ages or times. I'm giving you nine different periods, if you will, as we go through our Bible. Now, some break these down into larger categories. I broke them down into smaller categories. Some say, well, there may be the Old Testament age, and then there's the New Testament church age, and then there's the tribulation age, and then there's the millennial reign age, and then there's forevermore. There's five. Well, I've broken it down a little bit more than that, but we're going to go back and we're going to see these things. But I want you to understand that the things that he's talking about here in verse 14 are yet to come. Yet to come. Uh, we don't know when he's coming. We don't know when this tribulation period will begin. 
Not the, not the hour, not the day, certainly. Certainly we don't even know the year or the season. But also I want you to understand that these things must take place. We know that because back over early in the chapter, he said, the, verse 7, when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled, for such things must needs be. They have to take place. But the end is not yet. And now he's getting down to the end in verse 14. So these things have to take place. It's God's plan for dealing with sin and with Satan and with wickedness and evil, whatever you want to describe that as, but ultimately it's Satan and sin, and for drawing those who are believers, will be believers, to himself. That's why he shortens the days, is for those who would yet be saved. If he didn't shorten them, then nobody would be, they'd all die before he could get saved, but he's going to shorten them or lessen them so that people can be saved even in the tribulation period. It'll be a whole lot more difficult than it is now, so don't wait. If you're waiting, don't wait. But understand these things have to take place, and he will draw those people to himself. Also understand this. As we talk over the next two weeks, and particularly next week, we're going to dive into the judgment of God being poured out on the earth. I'm not going to get into detail as far as, I'm just going to give you the events. We don't have time in the next two weeks to dive into, okay, so the locust with the face of a man and the hair of a woman and the teeth of a lion, what exactly is that? I'm not going to get into that because a lot of that becomes speculation and we don't know. Are those some kind of demonic locusts or are they Apache helicopters? Don't know. Something in between? Don't know. God can do whatever he wants to do. But understand, I'm not going to try to interpret that. I'm just going to share those things next week in particular of, of the tribulation. But now I want to go back and go all the way from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. And I'm going to do it as quick as I can, and we'll see how far we get, but you'll see where we're at on that outline. Now I'm going to give you a few more things that are there. Uh, there's not a whole lot of room to take space to take notes. I understand that. But these things ought to be celebrated, meaning not that we want people to die, not that we want people to go to hell, but these things of Jesus Christ coming back, we ought to be celebrating. He is faithful to his word. He is coming again. He, he has great love for us and died for us and is coming back for us, and we ought to celebrate them and rejoice and look for them and pray for them. In fact, the New Testament saints say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that's what we ought to be doing. But these things are also, and they also ought to motivate us. Motivate us to tell other people, I don't want you to go through the horrors of tribulation and the things that you ought to face and the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And so therefore it ought to motivate us. But it also ought to not discourage us. And that's why we have to be aware of these things. These things are meant to be known. That's why they're written down and have been preserved for 2,000 years, these words, so that we can know and so that we can believe and so that we can tell others and have hope and not be deceived and not be discouraged. But also understand that these things that are yet to come are unlike anything the world has ever seen. And that tells us a number of things. So therefore, let's go back 
in your, and you can follow along in your outline, I want you to see this past, present, and future events that we're going to try to get as far as we can, and then next week we'll hopefully be able to finish the rest. But number one, if we go back to Genesis 1, we see in the beginnings, and so I've entitled that Beginnings. And we see that period in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, we're not going to take time to turn to all these. This is simply there so that you can go back and you can see it for yourself. But we see the creation of the entire universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, therefore, all that was made that is good and all that was... that He didn't make sin, didn't make hate, didn't make evil. But all that is made was made... By God, and it was good in the beginning. It was perfect. And we see in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, we see the description of God creating the universe and more specifically the earth. Now, he talks about the, the stars and the, the sun and the moon and so forth and so on as created, but most of what we talk about is dealing with our earth. And he created everything else as well. But the things that he put in the earth, the water, the plants, the, the animal life, mankind, that's all there in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In fact, he gives an even better description, if you will, or a more detailed description of mankind. He created man. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He brought all the animals before man, and Adam named them all, and there was no partner for him found, and so he caused the man to fall asleep, he took a rib out of his side, and he formed woman, and then brought them together in a relationship, a marriage, if you will, and said, populate the earth. And so that's all there in Genesis 1, in chapter, Genesis chapter 2, and that's the age of beginnings, if you will. There's also an age of the revolt against God, and that takes place in Genesis chapter 3. And for anybody that's grown up in church in any amount of time, you're aware of the fall of mankind in sin. And so I'm calling it the revolt against God because I'm not just talking about Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve sinned, but Genesis chapter 3 through Genesis chapter 11 is all about the revolt, the rebellion against God. Now, you could say from the moment of Genesis chapter 3 through now has been a revolt of mankind against God. But we certainly see the beginning of that with the fall of Satan due to pride. Now, you don't read in Genesis 3 or Genesis 2, for that matter, about Satan's fall. That's found later in the prophets. It's also found described in the book of Revelation. But we know that Satan was an angel. Satan was Lucifer. He was the angel of light. And he, at some point in time, said, I want to be like the Most High. I want to be in God's place. And it was pride that pride and envy that motivated him to rebel against God. He managed to tempt or seduce a third of the other angels, and they fell with him. God cast them out of heaven, and they are today what we refer to as or what we call Satan and demons. That took place somewhere between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, we know that because he's already there in Genesis chapter 3, tempting Eve and Adam. Now, this is according to preacher Jonathan. I think when he saw the relationship of God and man, that's when he rebelled and said, I want to be the one. I used to be 
right there with God. And I used to have that, and I was the angel of light, and I was the most beautiful creature ever created, and now I'm not. And therefore, I want to be like God. And I think that's where jealousy came in, and he rebelled against God. I th just my opinion, I think it's when he saw God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and man was made in God's image, and that's where he rebelled against God. But we see in chapter 3 where he tempts Eve, Adam along with her, and convinces them to eat of the fruit that God said don't eat. And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They rebel against God. They sin. They realize they're naked, and they hide from God. God goes looking for them. God says, I, you know, why are you hiding from me? And they tell him. They confess. They, they, they confess. And God then provides a plan of salvation. He sheds the animal or the blood of an animal, gives them animal skins, and then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he talks about the seed of the woman who would one day, being the Messiah, being Jesus, would crush, defeat the head of the serpent, being Satan, and that's foretold in Genesis 3 and verses 15. But also in the revolt, we see uh, Cain uh, killing Abel, uh, we see two lines of people, uh, one being Cain's descendants who go away from God, and we see Abel's descendants who generally are called the sons of God, and it's the godly line. doesn't mean they're always godly, but that's the line that Jesus is born from is a descendant of Abel's descendants. And so therefore that we see these two distinct lines, if you will. But mankind overall spirals downward into sin and to evil and into all kinds of debauchery because in Genesis chapter 6 we see God comes in and I repent it. It, it. it makes me sad that I've made man and I'm going to destroy life off the face of the earth. But Noah finds grace in God's eyes. And so God destroys the world with a flood, the whole world with a flood, but saves Noah and his three sons and Noah's wife and their wives alive on the ark. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the cross that would come, but he saves them. That's there in this revolt. Even in our revolting, even in our rebellion, God has a plan for you and me. We see that destruction, and we also see the continued, even after this, the Wonderful miracle of God, even though the provision of God to deliver man through an ark. And by the way, for a hundred years, Noah preached about the judgment that was coming. And for a hundred years, the people mocked and scorned Noah. And then when the rains began to fall, then can you imagine how they were crying out, let us in, let us in, save us. But it was too late. God had already shut the door. And so just like in that picture, there will come a day when God for 2,000 years since the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ has been teaching and preaching salvation through Christ alone and people have rebelled and revolted. But there will come a day when it will be made perfectly clear and Jesus will be seen in the clouds. Verse 26, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and there will be people that will say, oh, wait, wait, but for some it will be too late. 
But there's a continued downward spiral because we see even after the flood, even after that great miracle, we see the Tower of Babel where man once again becomes haughty in his heart and says, I'm going to reach up into the clouds and unto the Most High, and God confounds their language and scatters them over the earth. And then that leads us to the next section, the history of mankind. Now, history of mankind began back with Adam. I understand that but I'm talking that specifically the history of Israel. And it begins with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Malachi 4 is specifically dealing with the history of Israel. Now it deals with other nations, it deals with other peoples, but it's specifically about Israel, God's chosen race. He called Abraham and said, I will, take, I will show, go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham went. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had a son, uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau and Jacob, by the way, their descendants, the descendants of Jacob being the Israelites, the descendants of, 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 of I'm sorry, of Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac, uh, the, his descendants largely are the Israelites and Ishmael's descendants largely are the Palestinians and the Arabic people that are there at the throats of those two nations for thousands of years have been at each other's throats. And that's what we're seeing in the news today in this war taking place in Gaza and in Israel is because of Isaac and Ishmael. But this, it's what, the beginning of the Hebrew nation. Jacob has sons, uh, and 12 sons, well, actually he has more than 12 sons, but out of those 12 sons come 12 tribes, right? They, they go into Egypt. If we read our Bible, we see that, that Jacob, through, jo through Joseph, goes down. He's sold into slavery. He goes into Egypt, becomes the leader behind Nebuchadnezzar, right? He comes and therefore saves the whole known world from a great famine that was taking place. And through that, Jacob, who becomes known as Israel, and his sons go down into Israel. They're given the very best of the land, but a new pharaoh comes on the scene, and he makes them slaves, and they're there for 400 years or 440 years in Egypt. And that's where we hear about the plagues. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this is because we, when he says... There will be days like this, or these days of affliction, such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. We have to realize, as you look back over the course of history, there have been all kinds of terrible things that have happened. Specifically, when it comes to society or civilization, the flood. The flood wiped out everybody on the earth. In fact, all life on the earth, as far as it was that breathes air, land animals, was wiped out by the flood except for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and the few animals two by two that they took on the ark and seven of some other kind were on the ark. That's a global wipeout, right? That's bad. In fact, scholars tell us that it probably was around 4 billion people that were on the earth at that time that were wiped out. Now, do we know that for a fact? No, but they look at what would have been number of families and number of children and families, so forth and so on, and the number of years from creation. That's what their estimate is. My point is this. 
Everybody being wiped out is bad, but verse uh, 19 says it's going to get worse. And then we talk about the plagues that were in Egypt. And we talk about the number of people that die and the things that take place in Egypt. That was nothing compared to what's going to happen in the tribulation time. There'll be nothing, even what happens in that time will make that look like nothing in, by comparison. So we see that. Then we see, of course, after the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, the Israelites exit out of Egypt, right? They go through the promised land. Uh, they, the Ten Commandments are given. Uh, they come to the promised land. God provides along the way. They come to the promised land. And if, again, you remember your Sunday school lesson, there was 12 spies that were sent out. Ten come back, and they say, no, we can't do it. Two, Joshua and Caleb come back and say, oh, yes, we can take the land. The people of Israel believe the ten, not Joshua and Caleb, and therefore they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's a tragedy in of itself. Many, in fact, all the people over the age of 20 die in the wilderness. Tragedy. But they come eventually and they enter the promised land, led by Joshua. They conquer the land. As they're conquering the land, and especially after they conquer the land, the people once again, after Joshua dies and his generation dies, the people rebel and start worshiping false gods. And in the rebellion, God brings judgment. And it's the time of, if you look, the book of Judges is the time. The book of Judges, the book of Ruth, those are books that would have taken place after the conquering of the land of Canaan, but God brings judgment, and it was a cycle. They would worship false gods, they would turn away from false gods, and God would bring in the Midians or the Amalekites or other nations, and they would conquer them, and they would plague them. The Philistines would bring all kinds of problems on them, and then the people would cry out to God. God would send a judge. Think of Samson. Think of uh, uh, Barak and Deborah. You can think of Gideon. Those people that God sent to judge and lead the people out of their problems over and over and over again. And as they do that, then we come to the time of Samuel's born, the last of the judges, the first of really the, the high priest. And Samuel then is called by God to anoint a king, and Israel becomes a monarchy. And you have, during that time, you have the united kingdom of that monarchy, and that's Saul and David and Solomon. And then as you read your Bible, you find that after Solomon dies, the kingdom divides into northern Israel and southern Judah. And in that time, the ten tribes go in what's known as Israel. The southern tribes are known as Judah. And they, go, they have their own conflicts. They have conflicts with other nations. Lots of people die. And in the end, because of the rebellion, the northern kingdoms more so downward spiral into false religion into false gods. They're taken captive by the, by the Syrians. Uh, the southern kingdom had a few more godly kings, a few more revivals, but eventually they become captives to the Babylonians. And if you study your Bible, you think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as being perhaps the most famous of those. There, of course, were others. And that was the exile of the kingdoms and prophets. Now, again, the prophets, I kind of skipped over that. In the divided kingdom, you had your prophets, your Isaiah, your Jeremiah, those kind of prophets. That's taking place during the times of the divided kingdom. 
And then you had, after they're in Babylon, you still have other prophets that come in. Think of Ezekiel, think of Hosea, think of Joel. And those prophets are talking about if you turn back to God, and uh, when you turn back to God, he will restore you. And he does. After 70 years, the southern kingdom of Judah is restored and allowed to return to Israel. And that begins the return of Israel. And then when you read your Bible, the books of Ezra, the books of Esther, the books of Nehemiah are dealing with the history after they were returning to Israel. That deals with all that. And there's continued message of the prophets, but it's mostly about the coming Messiah is what's coming. And so then now we're, again, I'm going to run out of time here in a minute, but you reach an intertestamental period. And in that intertestamental period, there's 400 years that nobody hears from God at all. Not a prophet, not a word, not a book, not a preacher. Now, they had priests, but there was no word from God during that time. Now, during that time is when Greece conquers uh, the known world. Egypt, Syria, that's all, uh, the per uh, Persians rather, that's all when Alexander the Great, you know, we have some teachers in here, some students of history. Uh, Alexander the Great rises to power. He takes the throne in 336 B.C. He conquers Persia in 334 B.C. He conquers Egypt in 332 B.C. And basically the entire known world is ruled by Greece. And then he dies. And, and dying, he had no real secession plan. He was young. He had no children. And so therefore, four generals take the, uh, the, over the kingdom, and it's divided among them. And one of them gets the area of Israel, that Palestine area, that area of Canaan, that area there where Jerusalem is. He's over that, and that's where the first abomination of desolation takes place by Antiochus Epiphanes, and that takes place in 167 to 168 B.C. Again, about 165 years before Christ is born. Now, during that time, there was all kinds of turmoil and heartache and trouble and persecution in Israel. All that's to say that what we're going to see in tribulation is far greater than what took place in the 4,000 years before Christ. Not the flood, not the plagues, not the conquering, not the exile. None of that compares None of that compares to what's going to take place in verse, as we talk about in verse 19, this time of affliction. Very quickly, very quickly, I'm going to go through the New Testament. So then, very quickly, we have Jesus is born, the age of the time. By the way, just to end that right there, uh, Greece is conquered by Rome in the Battle of Corinth, 146 B.C., and then they take control of Israel or Jerusalem in 63 B.C. And that's why you have, when Jesus is born, the Romans are in charge. The Herodians are there. King Herod is set up as a, uh, a false king, but he's there governing the area, if you will. But it's Rome that's in control. Jesus is born. We see the life and ministry of Jesus play out for 33 years especially the last three and a half years we read more about, and that's where we are in Mark 13. So in Mark 13, we're towards the end of his three and a half year period. 
They've seen all kinds of terrible things. They've seen all kinds of persecution and hardship and difficulty. And then they're going to see more. That's why he says, so nothing you've seen, nothing that has taken place up to this point is going to compare. And nothing after it that takes place is going to compare to what will happen during the tribulation period. And so therefore, we, they, they soon learn their Messiah, their Savior, their Master, their Teacher dies. Murdered on a cross. Cruelly. Then he raises from the dead and he comes back to them and he gives them some final words and instructions. The great commission in Matthew 28 and also in Acts 1. He ascends to heaven in Acts 1. And then the church age, number six there on your page, the church age begins. Now, very quickly, because I'm about out of time, but very quickly, the church age, some say, well, it began at Pentecost. Some say... Well, it began when Christ was with his disciples because Christ built the church and them gathering together, would that not be like a church? Let's not get into arguing about that. Generally speaking, when the Holy Spirit is sent at Pentecost, we mark as the beginning of the church. And the early church begins there at Jerusalem. They deal with persecution and they're scattered. Uh, think of Peter and John's arrest. Think of Peter's arrest. Remember when he was in prison and the angel opens the doors of the prison and lets him out and he goes to the house where they're praying for him and they don't even believe it's him. The little girl says it's Peter at the door. They say, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. He's dead already or he's in prison or about to die and he does not and he's there. That was the persecution. Think of Stephen's martyr when he's stoned to death at the hands of Paul. That's all taking place. And then Paul gets saved and spreads the gospel along with the other apostles that are alive, uh, the missionary journeys of Paul, the ministry of Paul, uh, Barnabas, the apostles, Silas, Timothy, all that is taking place in this church, the beginning of the church age. And then there's the beginning of sorrows. Now, Jesus taught about this, but the beginning of sorrows he predicted when he was alive, but it happens in A.D. 70 when Rome, because they think there's a rebellion, destroys the temple. One stone is not left upon the other, and the church or the Jews are scattered from Jerusalem and Israel. And then where we are today is the continued church age. This is the last age. That's why when we say the last days, we are living in the last days, and literally the last days is the last age. The church age is the last age before Christ comes back and takes the church out and begins the tribulation. And so therefore, the church age ends with the rapture. Now, we don't have time to read this, but 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 talks about this. Uh, very quickly, there's three rule, general uh, beliefs about this. Pre-trib, pre-tribulation rapture, which most of us, I am, and most of you, if not all of you, would say, yeah, that's what I've been taught, is Christ will come back before the tribulation. Uh, the, Holy, the reason we believe this is because the Bible says that when, the, when that which restrains is removed, then the Antichrist will come on the scene. The Holy Spirit is the dam that holds back the tide of evil. You may see all kinds of evil, but you can't imagine the kind of evil you're going to see when the Holy Spirit is taken out. Who does, and you can answer me, and I know we're at a time, but who does the Holy Spirit indwell? 
The church, the believers. And so therefore, when the church is taken out, the Holy Spirit is taken out with him, and that is when the evil of the tribulation will begin. Now, there's some that believe in a mid-trib uh, rapture, and the reason they do is because, and, and this is possible, I could be wrong, but the abomination desolation is the breaking of the peace treaty of Israel. Um, and the reason that there's a place where it says that God will not allow his people to go through great tribulation, and some consider the great tribulation the last three and a half years. Um, I don't think that's it, but it could be. And there's some that think that the church will, be, will live through the tribulation and will be taken out of uh, after the tribulation, but... 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that God will deliver the church from the wrath to come and that God will keep the church from the hour of temptation is Revelation 3.10. Those places seem to indicate to me that we are not going to live. Christians, the believers, are going to be taken out before the tribulation comes. And then the tribulation will take place for seven years. And we're going to stop there because... That's essentially where we're at in verse 14, the tribulation period of seven years. And we'll talk about this, and we may have to go uh, next two weeks, but either way, understand that all the terrors, all the death and destruction, all the violence that has been taking place, all the periods of calamity and disease and pestilence, Famine, destruction, wars. You can think of in these days, you can think of, again, as Americans. Now, again, he's talking to Jews. But as Americans, we think of the Civil War, the most deadly war for America. We can think of World War I. We can think of World War II, as far as the most deadly war the world has ever seen. We can think of Korea or Vietnam or what's going on now. All of that dims in comparison to what is coming. All of that dims in comparison to what is coming. And there is a tribulation coming. And there is a millennial reign of Christ coming. And there is a final forever that is coming. And we ought to celebrate. If you're saved, you ought to celebrate. And praise God that one day there's going to be a day when all this wickedness and all this evil and all this hate and all this sin and all the temptation will be gone. And there'll be a day when all the tears will be wiped away. And there'll be no more pain and no more sorrow. Oh, what a day that's going to be. But it's yet to come. Why does God leave us here now? I don't know all the answers. I know it's so that we can tell people about him who is coming. I know so we can be a testimony. I know it's so that we can, be, can help draw attention to God through our lives in the one way, the only way to heaven. That's why we're here. Why he allows my grandmother, 97 and a half years old, who has dementia and Alzheimer's to hang on, it's because she still has a purpose. I was telling Jerry, and I'm not trying to embarrass Jerry, but I was telling him today, I don't know why he's going through and Elaine's going through all they're going through. But there is blessings that are still coming through Elaine's life, even where she's at now, still taking place. God still has a purpose for Elaine. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Why am I still here? Why am I going through this? Why doesn't God just come take me now? Because God still has a purpose 
for you. And it's to tell people above all else of what is coming. And oh, how you don't want to be here for that. Nor do you want to have to spend an eternity in a real place called hell. That is the final place for sin and for Satan and for his demons. But for those who don't believe, that's also going to be for them. Wasn't prepared for them. Wasn't planned for them. God says, I'm not willing that any should perish. But as we talked about this morning, not everybody gets to go to heaven because not everybody will believe. But we need to be urgent knowing that there is something coming that is unlike anything, a time like no other. Oh, won't we be ready? Won't we be prepared? Won't we be watching and on guard and praying for Christ to come? Let's pray. We thank you for listening to this message from the Word of God. At Pleasant Hill, we desire to be a help and a blessing to you. If you have any questions or prayer requests, or if we can be a help to you in your walk with God, we invite you to contact us here at Pleasant Hill by visiting our website at phbc.online. Thank you, and may God bless you.